0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation where we bring you role models, talk tactics and strategies, and examine key social issues to help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show about accelerating impact and developing talent with the amazing Deborah Quazzo. Debra is, amongst other things, the managing partner of GSV Accelerate, a venture capital fund that invests in the $75 billion education and talent technology sector and the founder and senior advisor of GSV Advisors. Debra is also the co-founder and managing partner of the Extraordinary ASU plus GSV Summit, which is now in its 10th year. The summit celebrates innovations and innovators across the global pre-K to gray learning and talent landscape and attracts, as I learned last year, over 4,000 attendees. Um, in Deborah's spare time, she's a member of the boards of the Common Ground Foundation, Harvey Mudd College, Steppenwolf Theater Company, the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation, the Board of the Deans Advisors at Harvard, the Khan Academy Thought Leadership Council, and the Board of Dean's Advisors Council at Princeton University. And that's not all of it. There's also Ascend Learning, Degreed, ETS, Lightyear, Remind, and Web.com. She is also the driving force behind the single best women's event I have ever attended. So with that, let me say, Deborah,
0: welcome (laughs) to Women at Work. Thank you. Thank you. Web.com got acquired last week, so you can take that one off. (laughs) Okay, good. Well, I'll say congratulations. I think that's a sign of success. That's
1: good. So, Deborah, with all the work that you do, um, I think it would be a gross oversimplification to say you're in finance. You seem to be doing something much bigger and more purposeful with the work that you do. You want to talk to me about what's driving you?
0: Sure I mean I think the it was interesting. So I, um, I'd been a longtime investment banker. I had begun to work in education and human capital about 20 years ago with a partner of mine in Silicon Valley um, who I've worked with for 21 years and, um, and began to focus on this emerging category of, of um, technology focused on accelerating learning outcomes, accelerating learning access and an additional success on the human, human capital side. And so, what I was happily able to do was actually concentrate my focus, which began as investment banking, moved into angel investment, and then into a fund. And I, and I, um, began to concentrate that around this as you said in the, in the introduction pre-k to gray spectrum of learning and talent innovation and on the on my philanthropic side of my life I had begun to also work heavily in education with you know with Kip, KIP school hip charter schools in Chicago and teach for America and and a whole host of other things and and I learned I began to see this opportunity to um, to kind of meld these two efforts on the on the sort of civic and philanthropic side and the um, and the commercial finance side and it and it occurred to me that innovation was as opposed to term the term that's frequently used on the uh, particularly education side reform which is to me got all kinds of pejorative implications um, certainly <laughs> reform does not make anyone feel feel good because it ins- you know, insinuates um, deep troubles and, and you know perhaps sometimes that's appropriate but but we began to see this opportunity to deliver innovation um, and, and innovative ideas as a um, as a positive catalyst on the philanthropic side of education and talent, and that would actually mirror what we what we were doing the commercial side. and And sure enough, of course, um, folks who are who are who have the hardest jobs in the world, in our K twelve schools, and our universities, et cetera, um, are all you know are are, are are turn is turned on by innovation and doing new things as as, as, as anybody and so th- that's kind of how I've ended up in this place where um, I, one I'm very focused on this le- you know pre-k to gray learning and talent arc um, our ultimate goal is that our, our mission statement that hangs over us is that um, that we really want to see all people um, have equal access to the future and we believe that to achieve that end um, which is a which is um, um, a big, big, big certainly falls in the big, hairy, audacious goal category for Jim Collins. But to get there, um, we believe the wedge of learning innovation. Ed- I mean, education certainly is critical to get people there, and we we think innovations in learning and talent, um, and and particularly with our focus really on technology innovation, you know, has a real opportunity to try to ex- to accelerate. Opportunities and to accelerate the um, el- the elimination of gaps and, um, and 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 achievement and otherwise that we see actually wage gender etc. You can kind the, <laughs> the gaps. There's a long list of gaps. So we, but so we, we think there's a real opportunity in the in, in what we do on the on the commercial side of the business to to actually address many of these bigger issues. Um, the bigger issues of how, we, how all people have equal access to the future. So Deborah, and what
1: you just shared with us, there is so much that's important. I want to unpack it a little bit, um, both so that we can learn how to consider the interconnectedness of these ideas and also understand how you got here and learn from you and your own experience. Because you are at this intersection of innovation, venture capital. Mm -hmm. Um, There's both your philanthropic goal here, which suggests this is a passion of yours, and understanding the complexity of the need. Yet we also know women in venture capital, there aren't many. (laughs) (laughs) Women in tech, there aren't many. Lots of barriers there. Not to mention the um, hurdle that educators have faced in figuring out how to embrace and incorporate digital technology at all levels of learning. Yep. So can you talk to me about how you started to wrap your head around and see the power and potential of tech as a form of innovation in education?
0: Yeah, Um, for sure. And we were there really early. I mean, the the original thesis, which was um, developed in the mid-1990s, around... Well, let's just start on the investment thesis, which um, around education, and human capital, was that if you look, if you in the mid 1990s, you you had um, you could look at the education sector and say massive chunk of GDP, mm-hmm. highly fragmented, incredibly inefficient, <laughs> um, lacking really at that point any technology having touched it, and there was actually um, and an analog made to the healthcare sector. Right, which had, had at that point begun to see real progress um, through the delivery of effective technologies, and mm-hmm. that's obviously continued to accelerate there. And so we we, we made a um, we we created a thesis, which was that uh, education technology should should become a large emerging investment category. Um, we were early; it really didn't ha- it really didn't <laughs> develop fully for, you know, until the last five years. But um, but but. And the thesis, too, was the dysfunction of the category, the fragmentation, the poor results, et cetera, would attract great entrepreneurs and great innovators to want to rush in typically when you see large categories with high dysfunction um in the united states at least you see innovators rushing in to create solutions um and i think that that in the 99 2000 period the sort of first internet bubble we we did see a lot of activity it was just the sector was not ready so Mm -hmm. whether it was um whether it was classrooms not wired i mean there was you know no there was no wi-fi there was i mean there was just no basic wiring there was you know um Learning leaders not being digitally savvy, you know, students themselves at that point, of course, there there was not a you know not a savviness there either yet, um, or and. People were not get, getting attracted to the sector at that point, and there were all kinds of you know, um, procurement issues. And same thing for higher education, as you know. I think the higher ed moved a little a little more quickly, but um, to, to implement some technology, but not it wasn't radical at the time.
1: I was working mm-hmm. to bring technology into an arts university, and just the concept alone was hard to sell because it was hard for people to conceive of. It wasn't real to them yet. It
0: was it was, it was very so. Really, the only thing that got developed at that point was um learning you know, blackboard, the learning management right. system sort of um, development, and, which which and, was important, but it but it was but it was a different you know different beast than And a,
1: some of the details that you mentioned in there about an infrastructure, a, both a conceptual and a physical readiness, even do you have power plugs, do you have projectors? Right. You know all not, the, not the, whole the whole landscape Wi-Fi. needed to be reconceived of before the really innovative work that, could happen that's
0: right so I think what you saw in 99 2000 there was a rush of money into including some very big names like Kleiner Perkins and others to back sort of these new emerging digital technology solutions for education and um and and if, and pretty much everything crashed and burned right and so um I, I think having licked you know, everybody went back licking their wounds and saying they would never go back to the education education technology sector <laughs> and um <laughs> in fact people p- people still Stuck to that um, commitment uh, until about five years ago, when when things began to very dramatically change. Uh, you know, you obviously had the, just the very you know core change of um, digital natives moving into the classroom. So the students were so, you know are now so sa- savvy and and so much savvier than you know their their older adult <laughs> uh, parents and teachers and whatever else. So that that began to push it. We we have technologically savvy um, learning teachers, faculty, etc. The wiring issue, thanks to a lot of work by a lot of individuals, the government, et cetera, uh, we no longer have uh, connectivity issues for the most part. There probably there are still pockets, but for the most part, connectivity has been solved in the K-12 and has has long been solved in higher education. Um, so all the dynamics changed. It became a lot less expensive to build an education um, platform. We've had you know we've had massive disruption of traditional publishing. And you know, and I think for the higher ed side of things, I think the the um, the emergence of MOOCs um, in the 2011 time period, which is really when the three sort of biggest names um, popped out, real I think it did this really interesting thing. They were, they were wildly controversial, positive and negative on university campuses. Yeah. Everybody um, thought they were a Roman candle that they you know <laughs> popped out of the the woodwork and then they died. That's not which is not remotely true. They are all extremely healthy. Today and and doing and having modified their business each having modified their businesses slightly, but um, I think the most important thing the MOOCs did and and I remember talking to a publishing executive an executive at Pearson at the time is they said, you know until the MOOCs came along we it, we had to we would walk into a university to sell a Pearson you know digital learning product and and it was a hard you know it was a, it, there was a lot of resistance and pushback and I think what MOOCs did was really um, get everyone. Comfortable that this is where we are. That digital learning is is an important thing, and that we ha- that that it is not not something we can run from anymore. Absolutely not.
1: You're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm delighted to have Deborah Quazzo, managing partner of GSV Accelerate, in the studio with me today. So, Deborah, as you're telling that story um, and explaining how we watched education and technology come together, because now it's inseparable in many ways. Um, In there is the story of what happens when innovation comes along, that we kind of can't conceive of it and wrap our heads around it, and then there are some out in front who can, and we have to get ready for it, and then it becomes compelling, and there's a race to catch up and figure out um, who's going to be able to deliver it, how are we going to accommodate it. How are you looking for innovation now? How do you bring that perspective to your work now as a funder?
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because I think the, um, you know, one of the things about uh, online learning and digital learning, I think one of the things is, 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 you know, plays into the whole all people having equal access to the future and the future of work, et cetera. Um, what's, what's what's funny because it is that one, you know, we about a third of our country has degrees and about, you know. Depending on whose study you look at, 60 to 80 percent of jobs in the future, and arguably today, um, require some form of degree. So we have this massive chasm of um of folks who need some you know who cannot be accommodated by our traditional physical institutions so we're um lots of innovation is happening around you know in non you know to the delivery Mm -hmm. of non-traditional education um and certification and skills and um and moving beyond the degree to get people job ready um and and job ready means is a complicated thing today because jobs are changing so rapidly um due to obsolescence and and et cetera i mean i'm if i see one more I'm so tired of hearing about the robots eating our jobs, but but um, I think that the the reality of the change that artificial intelligence and machine learning is bringing to so much of the world um, is, is very real and is going to require all kinds of different um, skill sets and learning and um, ability to parse. You know to to parse very different things because because of the implementation of those um, technologies. So so I think we're looking at we're looking at for companies that are um, that are you know, we're very focused on AI. We're seeing um, uh, we've seen uh, two fascinating companies in the k twelve market mm-hmm. um, that are that are creating both um, actually one of which is taking univer- you know, long uh, long studied university IP to deliver uh, reading learning. In, a, in an AI and machine learning facilitated uh, software, which is um, is is beautiful and and compelling. And so' we're, we're very much there's a lot of fluff around AI clearly because you know because it's on every magazine cover. But we are very focused on it because we've we've actually had two companies um to two machine learning companies one out of berkeley and one out of carnegie mellon um are were, we're in our portfolio and have actually already sold so um, so we understand that it's a that it's a technology that's very transformative depending on where where it was, where it's applied in both of those cases it was actually automated grading one was automated grading of essays and the other was automated grading of um, calc- you know, computer science and and math and you know, stem subjects this is
1: fascinating yeah. and powerful in yeah. a
0: dozen different ways i want
1: to take a half a step back though to yep. Coursera. Yeah. Because before I broke for the reset, what you were talking about, you know, Coursera had this powerful impact on helping others see the potential of this. But on its own, I think it deserves a little mention because at least for me, it felt like this huge leap into delivering really high quality education. Yeah. um, And. Making it truly accessible yep. globally yep. in ways that I don't think education's ever been scaled before. No, is the, that
0: fair to say? Correct. And we, we, you know, our phrase for that is um, "weapons of mass instruction."
1: <laughs> um,
0: and so we, we, you know, one of the things that happened in the last decade is that. Um, education technology has allowed there was there was never network effects in education no such thing broadcast model you were in a room it was one to maybe 250 people i mean that right. was the network effect um what what companies like coursera um, edx udacity others um uh, in uh, you know we, we're an investor in coursera <laughs> so we believe they are extraordinary they were on the, they had a cover story on, on forbes this week which is great um it, yeah it, it is it 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 was an extraordinary phenomenon. So today, they're around, you know, north of thirty-five million learners. They still have six hundred thousand learners a month, new learners a month coming onto the platform. Incredibly global, um, and still providing free access to incredibly high-quality university-based learners. And
1: it's and it's education in in a range of disciplines. Range of disciplines, but some of it's skill-based, and some of it is about big conceptual development, so that you can now get a master's. Yep, from an Ivy League well, institution. Yes. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you the plug.
0: Absolutely, it's it's, it's very exciting. One of Coursera's businesses is the is the delivery of um, university degrees, and with the University of Pennsylvania, just in the last couple of weeks, was the first Ivy League. Institution, bravo to Pennsylvania. I would love to see my alma mater, fo- my alma mater <laughs> Princeton, follow, um, but I don't think I don't think we'll see that. But um, but it, but in a computer science master's degree from um, UPenn, which is huge. Yes, um, to have that. I mean, I, and I'm not sure it's even gotten a fair enough play. What a big deal that is it's a to huge, have it's, um, a, a, a university of that stature be willing to move online because um, it's a huge change in perspective.
1: Um, for the university itself right. to trust that. Um, third party, right. Yes. And also that delivering education in this form benefits society without weakening the institution itself. It's not a zero sum game. Correct. Both can happen in the same world, right. but this expands the power of everyone to learn this Absolutely. acquire it bre- these skills breaks down the
0: admissions process creates a whole different way of thinking about admissions versus um, it, it's a different I mean we want people who can complete they will need people who are highly competent highly mm-hmm. focused highly dedicated to completing the degree because completion is important for for Coursera and for the university but um it it is it's a it's a very big deal um that that we are going to um that we are making this kind of thing this kind of educational delivery um, accessible to all and so it'll be really interesting to see what the what the compo- you know composition of the class looks like you're also making it, and they've apparently had as you might imagine fantastic response to the announcement um i think this i think the, the um the class is supposed to be around 150 180 students something like that um but it it is uh it, it it's a it's a very big deal and i think the the other thing it does is allows People who are it gives flexibility to folks who are mm-hmm. working who can who can create some don't have to sh- you know obviously show up in a physical classroom anywhere and take a a, a course from a world class university so yeah I mean it, it's a it's pretty interesting University of Illinois was really the first to step out on the Coursera platform and with their IMBA the other thing the IMBA and and the, the Pennsylvania degree does is really creates Pricing disintermediation. Um, University of Illinois MBA pro, um, program is ten thousand dollars a year. Um, that is about one tenth of, uh, of what the higher name brand um, physical, you know, the whatever Harvard, Stanford, um, Penn, <laughs> uh, Warden degrees cost. It is a very high quality degree with very high quality, high levels of um, completion, um, and 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 it to me opens up the market, expands the market um, for folks who can one be you know, do it more flexibly. And and do it more affordably, and and, right. and pick Which up are, critical skills that are you know relevant to the mar- job marketplace. These
1: are enormous barriers. Um, you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host Laura Zarrow, and my guest this arrow this hour is Deborah Quazo, who's the managing partner of GSV Accelerate, amongst other things. One of the other things that I think is unbelievably potent in this is the idea, particularly this master's degree in computer science. Um, when taken as a remote learner mm-hmm. what it does to the gender dynamic yeah. of the learner and what it's promises for yeah. bringing women into the field at this level yeah
0: it's um so one of the most discouraging things for people who care about gender parity like i do and you do um is and the realization one that comput- that that jo- computer science is a pretty critical um future job uh, a c- computer computer science literacy and um, and degrees are pretty critical to high paying jobs in the future um, and actually women women's participation graduate rates for computer science have declined in the last and since 1990 and so it's it was, heartbreaking yeah it's heartbreaking it was 30% of CS grads uh, in 1990 were women uh, this year was 16% um, so I think some some really interesting things happen online um, number one and Coursera has seen this in their certificate programs that that are that are technical orient have technical orientations as well as their degree programs. And um, what you see is women you know one are graduating at higher rates on Coursera um, than the national average. So, so somewhere in the 34 percentage participation somewhere in the 34% range. Um, so you're just naturally getting more women who are comfort, comfortable to come take the courses. Mm-hmm. Um when they're online. Second, uh, what what's really interesting is you Coursera has also been able to study um, the programs and the populations of the programs. And what they did when they did that, because of the you know heavy data analytics being used um, at looking at the courses, what they when they did that they realized that women were dropping out of techn, of of you know STEM and computer science courses at higher rates than men were. And what they when they parsed the data they figured out that women if if a woman came on and took the initial quiz and did poorly. the the chances were that she was gonna drop out, drop the course. Um, When men took the first quiz and did poorly, they didn't drop out, Um, and they just kept going. And the other thing that Coursera was able to see in the data was that women, the female students um, also, are much more uh, rigorous about using um, using uh, material supplemental materials to get better. So, um, so they figured out that they could come in and provide nudges to the female students to study this video or study this supplemental material or something like that going into a quiz that had their res- you know had them. Um, perform better on the quiz and therefore stay in the course. So they're so they're, they're driving up ret- retention using online using the online platform. Um, I think the other thing that's happened that's happening that's great. You know, the, the data shows that women are much more inclined to take a course online. I mean, take a course period if a if a woman instructor is teaching. Now, one of the problems with so few CS graduates who are women is that there are few CS right. uh, um, teacher, pipeline p- faculty. Thin. Um, so the, the beautiful thing about an online platform like Coursera is you can actually take female faculty and scale them um, by the nature of the platform. So you're going to have you're going to have natural attraction to more women students by being able to take those female faculty and scale them out. I think um, it, in that and that's another really important piece. So I think we're just at the front end of seeing what digital learning and online learning can do to improve female participation, particularly in these critical um, STEM careers uh in sci- and um, computer careers but but and i and i, I think it's going to get more elegant and more um and more impactful as they go along but it's but it's neat to see what the early what the early data is showing that you can do to improve things.
1: It also sounds like there are some some of what you've described. It's fascinating to hear as a package. Some of it's not that surprising right. that we know if we take you know that men are often willing to take a chance at doing right. something when they're only 60% ready and women want 100% right. Right. readiness. Right. Right. Um right. you're seeing that reflected in this. Absolutely. But because these resources are currently available whether it's that you're looking for it for yourself or you're an employer and you want to encourage the women on your team to continue to develop right these are a potent resources but the message that don't let that initial assessment exactly dissuade you from the exactly. fact that you do belong in that program exactly because when we see women get over that
0: hurdle they're succeeding correct oh yes absolutely I, and it is simply it's behavioral so um, it really I think the ability to go in and nudge and and you know explain to people success you know what the success rates have looked like and and really get women focused on completion uh, which is the important thing I think it's just incredibly powerful. Do you um, think
1: that these Social psychological factors, not having role models, um, being intimidated at early performance. What we also know about in a real life classroom, the way that women's voices cannot be heard, are why we've had that decline since 1990.
0: Yeah, I think it, it is. It's really it, yeah. It's it's um, absolutely, I, and it's interesting because I'm. I, you mentioned that I'm on the board of Harvey Mudd, but um, and Harvey Mudd is run by an extraordinary woman, Maria Clave. Um, who's been the president now for for a bit and has has done remarkable things. Harvey Mudd is probably the hardest engineering school in the country in terms of just workload and and incredible outcomes. Students students there uh, earn the highest starting salaries in the country. Um, but what Maria has done in coming in one, she's created gender. Parity in terms of the popula- student population, near it's nearly fifty-fifty. It was about thirty percent women when she started. She's also cha- she's also worked very hard to bring in female faculty um, and to you know create role models and create a community that is supportive of women. So this year, um, the CS graduates. Were roughly 54% women, um, and, and physics graduates somewhere in the same zip code. So over 50% of both physics and CS graduates at Harvey Mudd, who are who are typically going on to earn the highest salaries in the in the computer sciences and the sciences period, um, are women. And that and that was I mean, that took very great intentionality. And so it, it shows you it can be done. And so that this sort of this fallback that we've had and the decline of graduates and can be reversed and and um, needs to be reversed because we need we need women writing out algorithms very badly
1: (laughs) most definitely and that they can even exceed um the the demographics that exist in our society well it's interesting once those lessons are learned well
0: the crazy part is women are going to college the college population is 60 percent women the problem is that we're 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 doing that, but we're not going we're still not getting into the highest paid majors we're not we're not taking the highest paid majors we're not and we're not populating um, you know, groups, uh, you know, um, subject areas like computer sciences. So that that's the, you know, the frustrating part is that, yeah, I think the fact that we're delivering over, you know, over the population percentage still under the university population percentage, but it is really impressive. Absolutely. We need to take a short break, but stay with us. I'll continue my discussion
1: with Deborah Quazzo in just a few minutes. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, here, here on Sirius XM 132. We'll be back in a moment. Listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and today's guest is Deborah Quazzo, Managing Partner of GSV Accelerate, a venture capital firm that focuses on the education and talent technology sectors. Um, Deborah welcome back thank you so before the break we were talking about the importance of the ed tech sector Mm -hmm. things that have driven you in this and you you mentioned something that kind of goes without saying here on women at work which is our commitment and concern for gender equity Mm -hmm. and so I wanted to dive into that a little bit and talk to me you are um, an eloquent vocal advocate and you're also making change in real life that's not just an idea. That's driven by a lot of passion, and I'm gathering some personal experience. Talk to me about how this coalesced for you as something that warranted the kind of attention you're giving to it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it was just it was natural. You know, I'm I'm um, I'm uh, on the I'm a 57 year old <laughs> working woman. Um, I have worked. Uh, it never occurred. I mean, never occurred to me not to be in in the job. Um, in to, in working i i enjoy it i love it i'm passionate about it so that makes it makes it easier to keep keep going so i think i'll i think i'll i can come back and do one when i'm 97 but um (laughs) but uh yeah i mean i i it certainly have being that age i came through a period in investment banking and i'm not sure it's gotten hugely better although i think many firms are working very hard at it goldman sachs and jp morgan and others um it was a it was a uh a very tough sector for for women it was there were no role models there were you know it was sort of like computer sciences today i suppose um there were no role models no formal programs i actually was just on a program this week in new york um with large companies talking about employee resource resource groups mm-hmm. ergs yes which i um i i, I ha, ha, dealing with startups not having been at a big company really forever for you know Twenty years or so, or fifteen years at least. I, I'm not. It was. It was actually an alien, you know, concept to me. Right, so because at it
1: startups there isn't the n- there isn't the population to support that kind precisely. of subgroup um, activity.
0: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So it was really interesting um, yeah. to hear what folks from Google and and uh, you know Hewlett Packard and uh, Dell and others talked about the the importance that or er, you know, place that ergs are are. are taking in the development mm-hmm. of, of women's um, women's groups and and career paths and supporting women to to you know accelerate in their careers. So, so that was really that was really fun to hear that that kind of thing is is developing in the in the larger sector of the um, of the employment base we probably need to figure out how to deliver that down into the into the earlier stage sector of the employment base in the in the venture back community um, because I think it's it's a little bit uh, you know lonelier down there but yeah so I, I got I really it became very it was a very natural passion for me I always always had it. I think that because um, uh, I always I had, a, had a, a great father who always told me I could do anything. Um, and he was he was the, he was the first feminist I ever met, I think. And um, and then I think what we had this aha moment as I began to work in the education technology space. And, and, I, and, and it's been helped more recently by the examples like we just went through with Coursera which, with what can happen when you can take traditional models of learning at, which perhaps have an inherent bias in them or right. have an inherent intimidation or have an inherent limitations or, for women in them. And it's not just women. It's women and minorities right. as it's, well. It's
1: any underrepresented group, and it's a
0: culture that begets it. It's it's really interesting because it's fascinating when you can take that um, – you could take – move people out of traditional models of learning delivery and learning you know learning is just all about getting skills to work to be good at work and i mean i actually did a, I had a great example for harvard business school so i went to harvard business school and i um and i was i really was uncomfortable with the uh, with the uh, tiered seats and the hierarchy of the road. i found it i found it contrived and and i and, and i've gotten more and more involved with with hbs and, and they've they've got a platform called hbx which takes which is a digital platform but it's like the Hollywood square. So you can see everybody, but it's flat. There's no hierarchy. There's nobody sitting in this row or that. And so, and it was funny when I took it, I said, I loved it. I said, this is crazy. And the reason I loved it, it felt so much more authentic to me that you were, you know, that wasn't this control. It, was con- it was more egalitarian. It was more egalitarian. And it, and it, and it just, a, it struck me as making me at least much more, um, participative and comfortable in the process. So that's the kind of what was fun. What's been fun for me was taking a natural, a natural passion, um, I, you know, uh, I did I did get into college by writing an essay about getting women on the board of my high school. Um, <laughs> okay, so this started early. Yeah, it started very early. Um, and then the first one they put on was my mom, which was fun. But um, the uh, – the, um, so I, I, it was a passion that I've always had and has grown – has, you know, can, has lived with me. To be able to suddenly see the area in which I'm vocationally passionate, I, i.e. education technology, begin to be able to deliver change um, for women and for minorities – Underserved groups broadly, um, because of it, because of its ability to take the traditional model and and, and blow it up, mm-hmm. um, and serve those individuals much more personally and much you know, with much more authenticity and with 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 the removal of bias to to a degree it is it has been a really great development for me. That's that's only really probably accelerated in the last five years you know, as these technologies have become real and as they've become um, scaled and as they've become, you're, you're beginning to see these impacts like the Coursera example we walked through on um, the last segment. So this is clearly
1: an area where you're not just passionate, but you're making a tremendous impact by helping these businesses develop and deliver these forms of ed tech. Yep. You also are making an impact in who the Founders are of these companies. Talk to me about how, because I feel like you are um, building, if not at the center of, a really extraordinary
0: ecosystem. Um, well, thank you for that. The um, we, we we love. It's been fun. I'm mean, so so. You know, what you're Laura talking a little bit about associated with this Arizona State partnership we have on the ASU GSV Summit. We have we have become a <coughs> we began a number of years ago um, a women's. Or, group called, and we now call it POW, Power of Women, in Education and Talent. Um, and we we get the women. It's a pretty fantastic event, as you, for for women and the elevation of women. It's for all senior women across across the learning and talent um, spectrum. And so and it, so that that started. That's an event and that's fun. And we're we we're, we're now working on making that less episodic and more of a um, have a, a cadence and a drumbeat that allows women to get together, talk about serious things. See critic. You know, we had um, Gina Raimondo, the the governor of um, Rhode Island, was one of our speakers this year. Emily Chang was one of our speakers. Great opportunity to elevate women have real real conversations around real issues and we will continue to do that I've also had the benefit of being able to invest in some really great women um, one of those companies is um, is a company called fairy God boss it's actually the company that convened the the, um, the Erg, um, summit yesterday or yeah yesterday actually in New York um, fairy God boss is founded by two extraordinary women it's a it's a um, workforce company that is the um, two two amazing women came out of Dow Jones. One of whom had had an experience of having been laid laid off in a big corporate downsizing um, at a time when she was pregnant, but hadn't told anyone. So, her, so she 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 figured from that that there she found out through that through that experience personal experience that there was no place to go to find out what maternity paternity leave policies were um, without having to go ask someone publicly. So, they started Fairy Godboss, Georgine Wang and Romy Newman, and and today Fairy Godboss has over about 2.2 million and rapidly growing career women on the site. Um, The idea is to create transparency around both policies and practices like like maternity, paternity leave, but also f- to allow women to go on anonymously and provide ratings and assessments of the environment for women in their corporations and in their, in their careers and whether they would recommend their company to other women. So that's another, I mean, that's another just a quick example. I have a number of other uh, female-led businesses. Um, Coursera was a female-founded business with Daphne Kohler. Um, that, you know, and that, that's just, and that's really fulfilling to be able to see women making a difference for women.
1: Absolutely. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zaro, and my guest this hour is Deborah Quazzo, managing partner of GSV Accelerate. And also for those of you who are interested in learning more about Fairy God Boss, we had the good fortune of having Georgina on the show. Um, so you can check it out on our best of list on Business Radio as well as on SoundCloud because um, she herself is a force of nature and worth learning from. One of the things about this that I find so fascinating, Deborah, is not just the businesses that are emerging because of these women founders, but that you're defying the odds that we hear about every day about women funders and women founders in Silicon Valley. Yep. So can you talk to me about how you're making a safe place for women founders, how you're finding them, supporting them, and addressing those barriers that we know are there?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that we're, our fund is, you know, we're not a women-focused fund, but we do, I think, probably have a, a, a disproportionate share relative to the single-digit averages of <laughs> uh, female, female-founded female businesses and certainly female executives. Yeah, I think there are um, – there and, and uh, there are some harrowing statistics around the venture community I think the the recent the the, um, the gap table uh, report that, that I sent to you that was recently done by Carta and a, and a female angels group which showed that that women if you look at all the the equity holding of venture back companies that women hold about a third of the equity but only hold about 20 percent of the economics which is mm-hmm. much more substantial substantial than the 80 cents on the dollar wage gap that we that we all talk about and has never moved and decades but uh anyway so it so it is a a serious issue um what we what we've done to to support women um is is and we've used this um this asu gsv summit event which um as sort of the the home base for it which is where we, we we do we we Call out women. We bring them together, you know, in, in groups. We we have conversations. We talk about key issues. Um, we we love to elevate female founders. We constantly elevate elevate female founders and leaders of all ilk. Um, it, it it's an important practice. Interestingly, within education and human capital technology companies, what we've found in polling, uh, we we have about four hundred companies that we invite every year. Tech CEOs that we invite every year to present at the summit, and what we've consistently found. We actually, and we, and and this is not contrived; it actually just happens. Is that um, uh, through excellence, that about a third of the companies are led or founded by women, which is. You know, five times what the average is in, te- in tech sectors in Silicon Valley, and so we it, we're, we're fortunate in that I think for for whatever reason, women are attracted to to lead and found you know businesses within the education and talent sectors at higher rates, and they are um, than they are in other sectors. I also think we're fortunate in that there are a number of female leaders of funds um, and and female you know partners of funds in the sector. Um, that is certain. That certainly outpaces what happens in in, uh, in other sectors. So I think that there is um, there is a real uh, important alignment. Um, of people of of all kinds of people from Mitch and Frida Kapor who've been great champions of um, great champions of equity of all forms in the in the education and and uh, workforce markets, uh, technology investing markets. Um, so we, we have we're we're very blessed to have a lot of um, a lot of people who've really stuck their necks out about the importance of equity and, um, and of parity. where, you know, and, um, so, so, and we've tried to really play off that creating, you know, organizing events around those, um, to, to play off those in important communities.
1: I also want to take a moment, because I don't think I ever got to thank you, Mm because being there was its own treat, Mm. but part of what I saw that I think was so powerful is given how many communities are trying to create places for women to connect with each other, was that it felt very purposeful and dynamic, and that the discussions were about real issues that were challenging, but presented intelligently and with depth. There was a kind of, um, a way that there were founders and funders teachers and learners, advocates and people who needed support in right. that room. Right, And so it was not, um, I don't want to let the gentleness of how you described it belie how Purposeful it felt it, and how it,
0: powerful yeah. it was as a result. Well, and what, what we try to do, what we like to do, is we. Um, th- this Plus event, there was that great we, food. It was good. Food. It was <laughs> good, good entertainment, good food. Um, what we what we like to do, we're proud of, is that the the event is a, what we call a strange cocktail. So it is, it's K twelve educa- leaders, school and district leaders, it's university leaders, it's corporate leaders, it's f- funding leaders, and it is because inter- it and, and it is purposeful. I think we're we're um, we certainly it's one of the reasons I was attracted to be commercially involved in the sector because of its purpose Um, and it is it is fascinating when you think about it because and i'm not going to have the exact statistic but everybody talks about the problem it's a pipeline problem it's a pipeline problem well look at just the the k-12 sector right Mm -hmm. there is no pipeline problem there because the because teachers are you know women are well over 50 percent of of teachers in america and yet if you then look at district and um and school leadership, they are well under fifty percent. So yep. it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting. So we do think we can bring purpose to the conversation in helping, you know, in in that's like in K twelve higher education and workforce, um, they're all they're they're, they're issue they unique issues in each. Um and and I think that one's actually particularly intriguing because it because it doesn't get a lot of attention because I think sometimes mm-hmm. teachers are not treated as the professionals that they are, and um, and we we actually have a little a little work afoot um, in in partnership with a woman named Hannah Scandera, who was the New Mexico Superintendent of Education uh, in the state, um, around how you know how do we kind of go at the how do we get more active on this topic of. Why are women not being pulled into leadership roles in school and districts, or all around our country? At you know, g- given that we clearly are there, there is clearly a talent pipeline sitting there. So, so what? Could we, so that's 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 on my agenda. We haven't we haven't <laughs> we haven't rolled out the full activation yet, but we think that's a very important. Um, I haven't spent
1: my career in higher ed, I've described it as a gender layer cake,
0: mm-hmm. and that
1: there's, it's as if there's ghettos within the institution, and particularly in K-12, through 12, of women in the classroom, particularly in K-8. through eight, and then you see men teaching in the higher grades right. and then leadership roles. And part of what was so powerful about this community of women is you saw innovation leaders, you saw superintendents, yep. you saw people, um, public servants, you saw people at every level of the ecosystem who could start to facilitate change and become aware of each other. That's exactly right. And um, also in that magic way of maximizing impact, then all of those relationships spark other relationships. Right. I had dozens of phone calls when I came back okay. afterwards, and I hope some Good. of them were useful. Good to those on the other side. I wanna talk about mentoring, though. Yep. Because in a way, you've created an ecosystem so we could find each other. Yep. Um, who are you mentoring now? How do you approach that, and who mentors you?
0: Um, I don't know who mentors me. Um, I'm too old for that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I missed that boat. Um, and, and, and I think you know one of the reasons I've been a pretty active mentor is um, is that I missed that boat. I just, I you know, I didn't, I was, my career, Merrill—I was at Merrill Lynch for 13 years. There was really, there was certainly no structured mentoring. There were, there was, there was little. Um, uh, there, there were few women um, to do it. it. It was just not. It was just not the kind of place where the mentoring relationships were established. And so, and, yeah. and also,
1: I've heard from other guests who are part of the mm. same generation we're from that it wasn't on our radar like it is now. Yeah,
0: it was. It wasn't. It, and and I think and, and, and frankly, then it just happened in kind of an old boys network and Mm -hmm. so men did mentor men and i think we're uncomfortable mentoring you know it neither here nor there but i think that in hindsight realizing so i then left and started my own company with a you know with 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 a partner and um we started an investment bank, and then you then you you can't be mentored because you're, you're, you're you whatever you start you started the business. But I, so is, is my own observation of how much better it might have been if I had, you know if there been somebody fantastic mm-hmm. in that 13 year period where I was really my most important developmental years. So I have been um, I. I love mentoring, um, company you know, founders, CEOs, um, women and men. Um, so I spent a lot of time doing that. I have been very blessed to, um, meet a couple of young women. Um, I have a, we have a, a, a who I, who've become very much part of my life. There's a young, a young woman, Andrea Mondragon, who is a senior now at, at Denison and, um, whom I met in a elevator when I was on the Chicago public school board. And, um, We just fell to talking and it turns out um, that she is a DACA student and um, and uh, um, needed some mentoring and to to get to college and get to the right place. And she got to the right place. Denison has been spectacular, um, incredible, incredibly supportive of everything that Andrea has done, um, including having her meet you know, many members of the board, which has been really interesting and terrific, and so she's a senior now, very proud of what she's been able to accomplish, and she's actually hoping to go into teaching, which is is pretty cool.
1: So in the version of, in the movie about your life, that moment where you meet her feels important. Mm -hmm. How did
0: you discover each other? It was funny. I, um, and I'm not, a, I'm an introvert, so I don't normally talk to people. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I think I just said hello. We were, she was on a student council, a sort of a, an Uber student council in the district. And I was going to the meeting, you know, as, as a board member, just to, um, wave the flag. And, um, so we started, we, we, I just asked her what her aspirations were. And she told me about, you know, she wanted to go to college and, um, and that she had hopes to, um, you know, do different things college related. And so we, we began, I sort of began to, unpeeled the onion, um, in terms of what uh, the challenges she was facing as a, um, as a, you know, wonderful young woman. And, um, and, and we began to help her around, uh, you know, test prep around the, the ACT and, and, um, helping her, um, access some of the, some of the folks that my, my own kids had, had, had worked with. Um, and, uh, and she just, she just the most warm, grateful, Never, you know, for, I mean, it, standing in the shoes of a of a of a young person who's coming up through the um, the DACA the the the, un, uh, the undocumented system here in in um, in America is uh, is a very sobering experience. Um, and I, I, I can I will never complain about anything again. And 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 she's never never down, always up. Gives everything her all. She's done and has done a spectacular job. So
1: she sounds as remarkable as you are. <laughs> You're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. You've been listening to Deborah Quazo, managing partner of GSV Accelerate. And I, as you probably know, I'm Laura Sarrow, um, executive director of Wharton People Analytics. Um, and so, Deborah, one of the things that I love about this story, aside from that, there's this extraordinary woman out there who's really beating the odds, and that you're helping her do it, is that it's an example for us of what happens, I think, in a very personal way yeah. when two things come together: um, a young person's courage to share and say hello and talk, and your curiosity that even in your moment of introversion, you listened and. That she couldn't have found a better person to listen at that moment and that you found so part of it is message to everyone out there right ask the question everybody bring in the your elevator <laughs> yes talk to people <laughs> but the other part of it is about recognizing that there will be now fortunately mentorship programs Yep. sometimes we confuse the word mentorship with coach yep and where people can guide you and that's valuable but there's also a unique power and I think depth of reward that comes from the relationships that we organically build. That's you right. didn't go hunting. No,
0: for no, this. No. I think that's right. I think I think organic relationship, and, and, and we're also busy, and you know, I mean, I think finding time for organic relationships is really important. Um, I've also, um, another, and it's actually, I've been able to connect the networks, which is great. I've also, the, dire- the executive director of KIPP in Chicago, a wonderful, extraordinary human named April Gobel, um, has also been a, a pretty a terrific mentee of mine, and has become you know also also a member of my family, and and is actually, and then I was able to connect April with Andrea, and so April has been a huge coach for Andrea around the whole looking uh, prospectively for teaching opportunities and what the best application is so it also becomes really fun when the nodes the nodes in your network actually have complementarity and you can you can you I was just thinking them, I would love is...
1: to see your network map well, and, it was the, good. and it's ripple effect it was good I know And actually the
0: common person between me and April was uh, is a woman Mahalia Hines, who is uh, a school a longtime Chicago School board member, rock star principal, and, and actually Common's mother. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, Anne Hines. Which explains something Anne about Hines. Common. Uh, exactly, exa- <laughs> It certainly it explains a lot about Common. Anne, Anne Hines is extraordinary. So she she's also been in this network, um, helping around mentoring both, you know, April and others. So, okay. So it's well, fun to have have notes.
1: So while there's no humor without truth, and you were joking before about you know you're too old to be mentored, you still clearly learn all the time. You are in command of swaths of knowledge that are complex and interrelated in fields that are changing right. all the time. Right? How do you stay current and how do you learn?
0: Yeah, um, I work it like crazy. So, for example, um, I mean, I read, I read constantly, but, but. I said artificial intelligence, and I'm certainly I certainly do not have a machine learning AI degree. <laughs> so um, for us to, to step into investments where your where it's not your core academic discipline is is a scary thing. So um, we, we're fortunate that we have many people in our network wonderful partners and friends and in, um, in the network who are, who are deeply steeped and deeply academically uh, oriented but um, around AI for example um, we read like crazy but I'm for example flying to China Beijing um, on the 29th 28th for like a, for effectively a day trip um, because uh, because we have we have great partners in in the China market um, China is eclipsing the United States in education and innovation at, at such a it's a, at, the, at a pace that is inconceivable, um, because the from a top down and a bottom up perspective, the government, parents, students um, believe in the importance of of the of the economic advantage of being smarter than you know having a population that is more well versed and skilled and smarter. So they are applying emerging technologies um, you know, at a clip that is absolutely head spinning. They also have the core issue that it's it, it would not be feasible for them to, to manufacture a teacher or faculty uh, population to serve their they their population, they absolutely so have so to enormous. scale delivery of education, and there's no way to do that physically. So, um, so, so, well, I'm flying to Beijing to be part of an opening of uh, an AI lab in um, in Beijing that founded by New Oriental, which is the second largest education company in the world, and um, and we're we're partnering with them on that. So. You know, I'm a I I I can't get enough information. I, I'm a junkie in that regard. You know, every time um, I
1: talk to you, it's like, did you read this? Did you see this? I, I, yeah.
0: I, it, so it's it's um it it is it is um I, I just it it's just the, the I. It, I'm curious about everything, so I just keep pushing myself to, to read and meet people. It's really, I mean, there's a wonderful, I may have described this to you, but a, a company just went public, a Chinese company just went public, founded by a wonderful Princeton PhD out of their AI machine learning practice, but it's called um, LAIX, Lex and Liliushu is the uh, Chinese name, and it's a it's a purely robotic language learning platform. Um, that is all AI, and, um, you know, deep academic team. I also have an advisor in the neurosciences at Yale, and um, what, you know, what the parts that are being put together around brain research and artificial intelligence that will allow a more rapid delivery of high levels of learning to people um, is just fascinating. Uh, And so, you know, so we do everything we can um, to to be there in the middle of it, to partner with people, to learn from people, um, and to to absorb as much of it as we can to stay on top of it. Deborah, it's so exciting to me to hear
1: about everything you're doing. I'm so grateful to know that you're out there doing all of this Um, and to somehow, you know, be connected with it where I am um, if people want to learn more yep. about how to get involved with the summit yep. how to they're developing ed tech solutions and right. want to find you where should they go
0: um, I am very good on email I'm often um, accused of being the fastest email responder in the history of uh, whatever. And and, and perhaps, perhaps perhaps (laughs) I should stop that. Actually, it's probably something not that I don't want to be famous for. Um, I'd love, be delighted to have anyone contact me as it related to an ed tech. uh, ed tech or, or human capital, talent, tech, workforce, technology um, development. We the, the ASU GSV Summit is is open to everyone. It's um, uh, you know it's www.asugsvsummit.com. It is our tenth anniversary. We're about to start rolling out the announcements of who some of the big time speakers are going to be. Um, and I hate to do this because we're really going to run out of time.
1: Deborah, thank you so much. <laughs> Go online to gsvaccelerate.com. Check out Deborah Quazzo. Thank you. This thank is you. Women at Work. Okay.